Romans chapter 7. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 7, and we'll get into it. This is, a, as I mentioned, I, I just love this passage. It is so human, and it is so practical, and, and people can get tied in knots trying to parse through it, but we'll do the best we can to break it down this morning. We're going to look at the first six verses, what it is to be dead to the law. But it's important as we consider this, as we look at this marvelous letter, that we realize that that chapter and verse breaks were added by man. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 really kind of go together. Um, uh, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not taking a shot at chapter and verse breaks. They're important. They're convenient. It would be a whole lot harder to navigate the Bible without them. But we've got to remember they're not inspired. Uh, there's a common thread here through these three chapters. It's a unified message, and it's that we are dead to sin in Christ. We are dead to sin and alive in Christ. So I, I guess the point in that is, is that because there's a chapter break, it doesn't mean that the thought progression has stopped. And it certainly has not as we transition from chapter 6 to chapter 7. Remember, Paul's writing a letter, and this is a flow of thought. It's, it's a whole train of thinking that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he's putting out there. So as we look at uh, chapter 6, just to sum up, uh, Paul's point there is, is that the Christian life is to be a sanctified, which is a holy or a Christ-like different kind of life. We've talked about having a different kind of life now that we're in Christ. Uh, important to realize that, that, yes, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, absolutely. The atonement is central to why he went to the cross. But he also, through the work he did on the cross, he went to grant us forgiveness and eternal life. Yes, but he also, through the work of the cross, grants us the power to live this different kind of life we're talking about. We don't have that in our own. And and we're going to talk about rule keeping this morning. Um, But it's important to remember we have a life that has been sanctified, past tense, as we've talked about. And we're living a life that is being sanctified. We are being conformed to the image of his son. We are being made holy as we go. None of us will reach that ultimate goal in this life. You find somebody that has... They're boasting, and it's proof that they're not. <laughs> so the point in all of that is, is that we're not living a life that's bound up in fear. That's what the law produced in people's lives, the fear of breaking the rules. We live a life of a loving response to the grace that we've been shown. So as we get into this uh, in chapter 7, I'm going to actually back up one verse and, and start with chapter 6, verse 23, because as I mentioned, it, it these two verses go together. He says in 6.23, he says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 1, or do you not know? I'm going to read through all six verses we're going to look at this morning, and we'll come back and, and take a look at them. He says, or did you, do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? Didn't you know that? That's what he's saying. 
For the, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to the husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, although she has married another man. Verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we've been delivered from the law, uh, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Tie in knots. <laughs> Sometimes it does. There's a lot here. And uh, as I mentioned, I've just been looking forward to this section. I love teaching this section. It's just fun. And there's there's some real interesting things that we'll tag along the way. Anyway, so essentially what chapter 7 is going to tell us is that sanctification doesn't come by the law. Uh, not by the law of Moses or any other law. We'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, so understand, though, as we talk about the law in chapter 7, uh, Paul's audience, yeah, there were Jewish believers and Gentile believers. There, there was a large Jewish contingent in the church in Rome, but there was also, it's a, it's a Gentile city. Uh, and so he has a mixed audience and he's appealing to both. He's not limiting this just to Jews. Um, interesting, in the original language, there's no definite article. The word the is not there in the original. He's talking about law. Now, yes, it applies to the law of Moses, but it also applies to any other kind of law. Uh, earlier in, in Romans, remember, Paul talks about this other law when he talks about the Gentiles being a law unto themselves, that by their own conscience uh, and by nature, he talks about both of those by, by uh, creation and constant conscience, that they also have dominion over a person. And that's true. Unbelievers don't live by the law of Moses, neither should believers, but there's no knowledge there. And yet that doesn't nullify this passage because we have a sense of right and wrong. We have an innate sense of, of what the rules are in living our lives. The point is, is that these principles apply to any external or self-imposed law by which we or someone else are compelled to live by and trying to become a better person. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. What does it take to be a better person? And what we're discovering is that, yeah, in chapter 6, we see, that, no, it's it's not by living a life of abject sin. We don't just come into this thing called Christianity and then we live for ourselves. We live the same life that we lived before. That's not going to do anything. We don't even, as we looked at last week, live our lives to try to accommodate God, but kind of keep this area of sin, this occasional sin to ourselves. That's not going to work. And now he's going to say, look, if you're going to try to do it by keeping rules, that's not going to work either. We will get to what does work when we get to chapter eight and we look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Powerful, powerful passage. Uh, if you look uh, at the New Testament as a mountain range, I believe that Romans is the, the tallest mountain. If you look at chapter eight in the book of Romans, that's the highest peak. It, it spells out what our life looks like in Christ. So 
as we're looking at this, like I said, you, you could look at it from a Gentile point of view, and, and he talks about, he doesn't talk about the law with the Gentiles, but he does talk about the body of sin. And he uses that term. He's going to use it more as we go through this morning and also into next week. The body of sin, that old man, that old nature. But he's also going to talk about the law, rule keeping, and both apply. So I guess the way I look at it is, if, let's say that I was living here in the United States. I'm under the laws of the United States, and I break a law. You know, I commit some felony or something. Now, if I go to another country where the law of the United States is not dominant, and I break the same law, am I less guilty? <laughs> no, no, not at all. And so that's why this applies not just to Jew, but it applies to Gentile as well. Because both are covered here. Both are included as the audience to Paul's letter. So he sums up this greater principle of law in, in Colossians chapter 2. There's a fascinating passage there. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, if you're a note taker, take that down. He says in Colossians 2.20, he says, Therefore, if you died with Christ, and that's what we're talking about here, we have died with Christ. From the basic, like the New American Standard renders that the elementary principles of the world. Why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Why are you living by the rules? That's not what Christianity is about. You've died with Christ. He says, uh, it gives examples of these regulations. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using. <laughs> That's a fancy way of saying if you're talking about things you're taking in, they get eliminated from your body. Uh, he's saying these are according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. Why are you doing that? These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. I like that. A false humility, neglect of the body. Remember we had this, the slides a couple of weeks ago, the different ways that people want to make themselves better people. These, these things that we impose on ourselves or that others may attempt to impose on us, the legalists, they're not going to work. He says they're of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. What's the point in this, gang? Simply, we love rules. I love rules. I want to get to the end of the day and I want to check the boxes. Man, oh man, I was so good to my wife today. No, it's a, it, the point is we can look at this passage in Colossians and think, well, I'd never do that. But how many times have you read perhaps a mag, magazine article, you know, 21 steps to a better marriage? How many times have you looked at something? It might be five steps to overcome overeating. That's one I'd read. And it just goes on. There is so much self-help. There is so much stuff out there that imposes regulations on us. And if we buy it, I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing, but it's of little value with regard to our spiritual well-being. Here's another one. What about New Year's resolutions? They're self-imposed regulations. That's what he's talking about in Colossians. How long do those last? I'm not going to eat any more than a thousand calories a day. You know what I'd look like after a week if I did that? I'm going to go to the gym three times a week. I'm going to read my Bible every day at 7 a.m. This just goes on, doesn't it? Uh, Again, these aren't bad things, but they're not things that improve my spiritual well-being. 
Yeah, I'm not, not saying that reading your Bible at 7 a.m. isn't, but if you're going to make that the habit of your life, at some point something's going to come up. Are you going to be under condemnation because you didn't? Or are you going to rest in the grace of God and say, you know, Lord, I'm going to give it my best, and I just pray that you anoint me and enable me to be able to do the things you're setting before me to do. But my point is, is that even with like New Year's resolutions, chances are pretty good that that thing's going to come back and condemn me all year long. It's just reality. So the point in all of this is that if the law can't save me, I can't keep it. It also can't sanctify me. It can't make me holy. It's, it's not, that's not the purpose. There's no power there. Again, we're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll get to that chapter 8. But rest assured, folks, I can't be cleansed. I can't be set apart. I can't be made holy by rules. And that's Paul's point in this. Uh, whether by the law of Moses or by my own standard or, or by my conscience. It doesn't work. It's not God's intention. That's not how free people live. And we've been called to freedom. So Romans 7 addresses the very same issue that Paul, he wrote the entire letter to the churches in Galatia, the the, the book of Galatians, to warn them against what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is legalism. That's And the legalist argument would have been something like this. Oh, yeah, you're right. (laughs) We've been saved by grace. But, oh, there's that word. But now in order to maintain that salvation, you need to adhere to the law. And Paul, he is, I'll tell you what, Galatians is the angriest letter in the whole New Testament. He is just upset. Because he knows that the end of this is something entirely different than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's part of what he's putting forth here. Don't fall for these things, he says. He says, you're saved by grace, period. You add anything to that, you're, you're, you're destroying the gospel. You're destroying the word of God. It's not grace plus anything. It's all by his grace. It's not by our, any law self-imposed or otherwise or any rule or any other thing. And, and you know, really, that's kind of a common thought today that people that are religious is sort of the thought of God's given me kind of a jump start with my salvation. Now it's up to me to take that baby all the way home. And, and, and I've been in churches where people either very blatantly or even subtly impose that. And I reject that on the basis of the word of God. That is not how we're to live. It's not Christian, it's not Christianity. It's, it's a legalistic approach. And what we'll see here in the rest of Romans chapter seven, after we look at this section we're in today, there's a downward spiral as Paul, he just kind of gets into it and he shows us what life trying to live by the law looks like. It leads to nothing but frustration and condemnation. Have you ever been around somebody who's frustrated, condemned, because they just don't feel that they measure up. A common thing that people say, well, I'm trying to be a better Christian. And my my response to that is, I understand on the surface what you're saying, but stop trying to be a better Christian. Just be a redeemed, purchased, loved child of God. All of that to get us to verse 1. In verse 1 he says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I speak to those who know the law, he's talking 
Again, he's talking to his Jewish audience, but he also knows that he has a Gentile audience. This applies to both, as I mentioned, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now, I want you to understand verse 1 here. This is a great example of how to misinterpret the Bible. I could take you to this and say, look, the Bible says that we're under the law. It says the the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. It says it right here. It's in black and white. Don't you get it? That's a great example of taking something out of context. As we look at the context, as we get into the context, you'll see that it says exactly the opposite. So beware of bad interpretations. Always check out. This is, it's, it's a great example of understanding that we have a responsibility to inspect the context of a passage to see how it's nestled. There's another one in here that, that we'll, I'll just mention that people can misinterpret. So... But what what he is saying here, he's saying that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. In in chapter 6, verse 14, Paul tells us that we're not under the dominion of sin. He says in in 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, the rest of this section in chapter 6 is Paul's expounding on that. Uh, It's a demonstration of the fact that we're either, remember we looked at, we're either enslaved to sin, the wages of, wages of which are death, or we're enslaved to God. And he talks about the gift of God, as we looked at in 623 there. So what is the gift of God? It's that we're accounted righteous, and it's by his grace. What's the result of that life? So the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, as he says right before he launches into this whole thought here. So now he's going to pivot in chapter 7, and he's going to elaborate on the fact that we're not under the dominion of law. So the big question for his audience and for us many times is, is what do I as a Christian have to do with the law? What is my interaction with the law of Moses or, as I mentioned, any other law, any set of rules by which I should now live? So in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul begins to lay out the answer. Now, I want you to understand the basic thought of this passage is founded in the legal principle that death cancels all contracts, okay? Keep that in mind. Death cancels all contracts. We'll talk about that more as we go. So now he draws a very practical example from the seventh commandment in the law of Moses. Thou shalt not commit adultery, as well as from human law, uh, to illustrate this principle. I mean, that's a that's a common human law, whether you're a spiritual person or not. You look at that, that draws a line. Verse 2, he says, For the woman who, who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. Pretty basic. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. Pretty easy to understand there. So to illustrate this, Paul shows how death breaks the marriage contract. Verse 3, So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is no longer an adulteress, though she has married another man. Again, legalists love passages like this, and they say, oh, no, you can't be married if again if you're divorced. If your husband's still alive, then you're an adultery. Hog wash. 
That's not what's being said here. Paul is not making, he's not doing a Bible study on marriage. He's doing a, a, a great illustration of what it is to be released from the power of the law. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about a woman that if she's married to a guy, and while he's still there, she's still married to him, she goes off and marries somebody else, that's adulterous. That's the point that he's making here. But he says, now, but if her husband dies, she's released from that marriage law, that the law of marriage, that contract, and, and she's not an adulteress, even though she marries another guy. That's his point here. So he applies in verse 4, he begins to apply this principle to believers. And, and this is where the progression of thought, you've got to stay with it, because otherwise you can get tangled up. And, and like I said, it it's just amazes me that this passage that delivers us from legalism, that legalists love to tag and isolate verses to try to make it say the exact opposite of what Paul is saying. Sorry, I get a little upset about that. <laughs> It's just, it's just wrong. And I've been exposed to this. I grew up in a legalistic church. And I had more laws imposed on me. Even the definition of the gospel was, uh, was that obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel was part of salvation in the group I grew up with, a false religion. So yeah, it, <laughs> it's out there. So in verse four, he says, therefore, Based on that, understanding that the marriage contract, that law of marriage is broken when the husband dies. Therefore, my brethren, you've also become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Do you understand that? He's talking about the body of Christ on the cross. He's not talking about the body of Christ, the church. We look at that in a different context. In other places in the New Testament, Paul talks about the church being the body of Christ. That's not what's being said here. He's talking about through the work of the cross, through the body of Christ. We become dead to the law. Why? Because we're dead in Christ. He says that you may be married to another. And that's to him, to Jesus, who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So in chapter 6, he talks about us being dead to sin. Now in chapter 7, he's saying we're dead to the law. The point is that just as death breaks the marriage relationship, so also the death of the believer with Christ breaks jurisdiction of the law over him. That's exactly what Paul is teaching here. You can't try to make that say something else. It is very, very clear. When you understand where he's going with this, and he's given a very practical example. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3, he says, we were baptized into his death. So our lives are identified with the death of Christ. His death becomes my death. And the law has no jurisdiction over a person who dies. Think about it. Let's say that you're in a courtroom and uh, some guy has committed some heinous crimes. There's three counts of murder on the judges laying out the sentence. You, you, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. We're going to add those years up. You've got 89 years ahead of you, blah, 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 blah. And say that the guy sitting there in the courtroom after the judge has pronounced his judgment, pronounced the sentence that he falls over dead. He's not going to jail. As a matter of fact, the law has been broken over him in the, so far as there won't even be a sentence carried out. They'll give his body to his family. Free to go. Why? Because the law doesn't any longer have effect through his death. That's exactly what Paul is laying out here. Essentially, the law has dominion over him while he's alive, but not after he's dead. My identity is now found in Christ. 
That old man doesn't exist to serve the sentence that the law required. We've looked at that. Sin equates to death. And when my life is identified with Christ, death, I've already died. You can't, you can't kill a dead man. And that's what the law does. The law pronounces a sentence of death. He's saying you're not, that's not part of it anymore. You're free from all of that. Now, I want to say something about Paul's illustration here. You've got to be careful not to make it walk on all fours. Sometimes uh, higher scholars, <clears throat> educated idiots, um, sometimes people take shots at this. Like, well, there's a problem with the word of God here because, after all, Paul's, you know, his, his, his argument falls apart. So let's break it down. Uh, he, and I have to believe that he was aware of the differences here. He makes three three statements in, in the illustration. The first is a woman is married to a man. The second, the man dies. The third is that the woman is free to be married to another. Pretty pretty simple. The second is where people get tangled up a bit. He makes three statements in the application. The first is that the readers and us, by default, uh, have a binding relation to the law. The second is that they've died to the law. The third is they're now free to be joined to another, to the risen Christ, the risen Lord. Where it falls apart as far as trying to make it match up is in the second, he says they have died to the law. He doesn't say that the law died like in the first part of his illustration. There's a reason for that. It's it's not that this doesn't add up. He goes on in verse 12 to talk about the fact that the law is holy and just and good. So the law does not die. There is no place in the word of God that talks about the law has been abolished, that it's gone, that it's dead. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Now, so what's our relationship with the law? Through faith in Christ, the law is now fulfilled in me, in Christ. I don't have to worry about it. That is a done deal. It's part of the death that he died. He fulfilled the law. And when he died on that cross, the reason he rose from the dead is that death couldn't hold him because he had lived a life of perfect obedience to the law. Now, by virtue of the fact that he accomplished it and I'm identified with his death, I don't have to worry about it. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's not law. You're never going to be made holy by rules. You're never going to be made righteous by trying to keep some external set of stuff. Death with Christ ends the law's grip over those who are in him. We talk about being in Christ. This is a central truth, a central understanding to being in Christ. My life is hidden in him. Any attempt to satisfy God by keeping the rules is futile. doesn't add up. My identification with the death of Christ ushers in a whole new relationship. We've been talking about this different kind of life. It's not by law. It's not by rules. So what's our response to all that? Fruit to God is what he says here in verse 4. That we may bear fruit to God. What is that fruit? A changed life. I'm free from all of that stuff. And and I'm not saying that we go out and we become lawbreakers. We've talked about that in chapter 6. It's not part of it. What I am saying is that our life is a loving response to a gracious Lord and not some mandatory thing by which I live in fear. 
by which I live in condemnation. That's what the law does. Fear and guilt have been replaced. With what? Freedom. I'm free. Now, does that mean that I go out and sin? No, it doesn't. And Paul says that all things are permissible for me because I'm not held under the bondage of the law. He says, yeah, not all things are expedient. Not all things are profitable. So what comes into play now is my life in Christ lived out by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the power of the law. The law doesn't have any. Verse 5, he says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So when he uses in the flesh, he isn't talking about our physical bodies. We've talked about that. What he's talking about is our old Adamic nature, the old life. That's what the flesh is. We'll look at the flesh more next week because he has a lot to say about it in the rest of chapter 7. But when we look at these sinful passions which were aroused by the law, um, you got to realize the law didn't cause those sinful passions. But naming and forbidding them stirs up a strong desire to do them. Now, I told Harvey before the service, I said, brother, I'm going to expose your sin to the church today. I remember we were at a men's group not long ago and Harvey, he was a truck driver all his life. And he said, you know, you can go four miles over before they give you a ticket. (laughs) How many of us now look, I see that speed limit sign and I'm just, I'm making fun, poking fun with Harvey because how many of us is like, we kind of calculate how far can I stretch it before I'm in trouble or there's a cop. The minute I see a cop, what the law does, the minute I see a policeman, my foot comes off. It doesn't matter if I'm going 10 miles under. My foot comes off the gas. That, that's the law stirring up those sinful passions. It's, it, that's what it does. Now, I'm going to do a test to hopefully illustrate this. And I want to tell you guys ahead of time before uh, I'm going to ask Ashlyn up in the, the, the loft to, to, to do something in a minute. But before I ask her to do that, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to give you a law. I forbid you to look at the projector screen and behind me until I tell you that you can. All right, everybody got that? Okay, go ahead, Ashlyn. I can tell by your laughing. You guys are a bunch of sinners. I picked a particularly cute puppy because it's like the minute somebody tells me I can't do something, what do I want to do? I want to do it. You know, if, I remember when my kids were little, I'd say, get your hand away from that. And I re- clearly remember my daughter was more defiant than my son because <laughs> she's a little spark plug. Anyway, I would say, get your hand away from that. And she would look at me and go. <laughs> and I'm thinking, don't tell me we don't have a fallen nature that we're born with. That's what he's talking about here. The law stirs up these sinful passions. I make a rule and I impose that rule on you. What do you want to do? You want to rebel because we have that Adamic nature, that sinful flesh, that lustful flesh wants to rebel. It wants to push back, doesn't it? And I used, yeah, I used an innocuous puppy because I didn't want to put some sinful thing up there. But the point remains. We learn young. Now, in verse 4, he talks about bearing fruit unto God. In verse 5, he talks about bearing fruit unto death. 
going to read something to you from Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 through 20. Jesus is talking to the people. He's teaching the people. He's saying, beware of false prophets and false teachers. Uh, he says, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Pretty sensible. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That is fruit unto death. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says, therefore, by their fruits, you'll know them. It's not about law keeping. It's about fruit. It's about cooperating with the work of the Spirit of God, working in my heart and and prompting me to a life, again, of loving obedience. Do I get it right all the time? Are you serious? No, I am absolutely under the grace of God. But do I use that as license to now go out and sin? Absolutely not. That's not part of it. When he talks about uh, a bad tree, bad fruit, I call this spiritual heart disease. And it's true. Heart disease, it's a leading cause of death physically. Spiritual heart disease is a leading cause of death spiritually. Talk to somebody who made a decision for Christ in their youth and have since just kind of gone on and lived their life their way until either maybe Christmas or Easter, then they might go to church. Heart disease. Talk to somebody who perhaps was raised in a church or relying on a religion. I have a great burden right now. Uh, My cousin Marcia has recently been diagnosed with lung cancer. And she was raised, her father worked for the archdiocese, the Catholic archdiocese in Los Angeles. She was raised in Catholicism. So she identifies sort of in a way with Catholicism, but, and she's a wonderful, loving, loving person, but I don't believe she knows Christ. And and God has put it on my heart that I need to be able to share the truth of the gospel with her because she's relying on the wrong stuff. She has She might have lung cancer, but she has spiritual heart disease and it will kill her if she doesn't turn. Even the habit of going to church. I I remember uh, Chris Christ, (laughs) that was his name. He was an elder in the church that I was at for many, many years down in Gridley, California. And he would tell the story of being a Sunday school teacher at the Lutheran church and that he was, he, he taught Sunday school, I think for 20 years or whatever it was. And and he he had never really come to a place of understanding even the things he was teaching. He was steeped in religion. He was going to church. He was an honest man, a hardworking man. He was checking all the boxes. That's what we're talking about. But he'd never given his heart to Christ. And when he did, he just he hit the ground running. He just couldn't get enough of Jesus and and the remarkable changes in his life. Uh, I sat on the board with him for many years, and I just loved this guy. Uh, even after he moved to Idaho, we kept him on the board because we we just loved having him there. The point is, it's not even about going to church. It's where's your heart? Are you trying to be a better Christian by living by the rules? You will be condemned. You will live in guilt. Or are you allowing your heart to be impressed by the Holy Spirit to where you've surrendered your life? To Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells us what a healthy heart looks like. He says, you know, this is the guy that called himself chief of sinners, by the way. 
I want you to just to know that. And he never forgot that. He never forgot. He never moved away from, I don't believe he lived in guilt and fear anymore because he is the guy that's teaching us about what the law does. So, but, but he was healthy as a Christian. He had a great burden to, to, to spread the gospel in its true meaning and intent, not in this half-baked stuff that was circulating back then and is circulating now. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. That's what we're learning in Romans, isn't it? It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's right on. I want my life to be centered there. I don't want to be centered in, in falling into the trap of condemnation, fear, because I, God's waiting for me to get out of line somehow. If you have been washed in the blood, you have been forgiven. His grace has thoroughly cleansed your life, past, present, future. You don't have to worry about it. So now, now that frees us. That's what he says in, in verse six. He says, but now we've been delivered from the law having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So Paul here summarizes what we've been looking at in chapter seven in the first six verses. Because we died with Jesus at Calvary, we're dead to the law and delivered from its dominion over us. Don't have to worry about it. It's not part of my life. We need not attempt to be justified before God or to be sanctified by God based on rule keeping. It's, I love that worship song. It's not about you. It's not about, or it's not about me. It's about you. It's not about what I'm, it's what about what Christ has done. There's a huge difference in that. Fear and guilt no longer have a hold on me. If they have a hold on you in your life, I would invite you, brother, sister, if you're living in fear, you're living in guilt, take it to the Lord. He's already paid for that. By you hanging on to it, it's it's hindering you. We fall into the snare of the enemy because he is what? He's called, the Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. He will condemn you every time. And I'll tell you what, we're going to look at condemnation as we get to the end of this chapter. But there is a difference between conviction and condemnation. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is real. If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, he will convict you over sin. That's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. The enemy will condemn you over sin. That's horrible. That will keep you bound up. How do you know the difference? I'll tell you what works in my life. This is not biblical, but this is just, I think, sound pastoral advice. Is I look at that thing and I say, is it specific or is it general? Conviction is always specific. And and it looks like this in my life. It looks like, John, if I have to pry your fingers off of that, I will. I don't want you to be involved in that. John, I want you to take that temptation to me. I want you to lift up everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of me. John, stop. It's things like that. Very specific. Condemnation, on the other hand, I'm walking around with a dark cloud over my head and I just don't feel like I'm ever going to measure up. I'm walking around thinking, man, I just blew it today. Uh, Yeah, I asked God to forgive me, but I still blew it today. No, understand. When you blow it, you take it to him. 
First John 1 John 1.9, he is faithful and just. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Therefore, you maintain a steady walk with the Lord. It's not highs and lows. It's by design. God wants us to have a fruitful life for him. And he also, by the way, wants us to have fun. You don't hear that in church a lot. Hey, guys, go out there, be a Christian, have fun. No, seriously. What greater joy is there than to live in the reality of what Christ has done in my life? What greater joy is there than to live in the reality that I don't have to worry about it? He does. What greater joy is there in living in the reality that my relationship with you is based in the grace of God? I'm not sitting there trying to judge you and estimate all these things and all that. I am free to just love you. And we're free to love each other. And we're free to enjoy the walk with the Lord that we have. You know, I, I know a lot of pastors... And it sometimes breaks my heart uh, because the pastorate can be difficult at times. And yet I know pastors that it's like, you don't have to have a rough walk with the Lord. You don't have to have a, a horrible or hard ministry. You have to be in the habit of taking these things to him and trusting God's people to God and just allowing yourself to enjoy the ministry that God's given you. I tell that to our, our team leaders here all the time. It's like, guys, just enjoy it. It's not worth the heartache and the upset that comes from guilt and condemnation. Don't do it. Don't fall into guilt. Don't fall into condemnation. Condemnation, again, is general. Very, It's, a, it's kind of a nebulous thing. Conviction is very specific. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm going to close with this. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about, uh, he, he says it's, it's, it's about the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter here in verse 6. And, and, and he talks about that in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 4. He says, and he says, and we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, uh, not of the letter, but of the spirit. Why? He tells us the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. When he talks about the letter, he's making a reference to the law. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, he's talking about the law when Moses came down that mountain and his face was glowing if it was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. They had to put a towel over it because he was cooling off. That glory was passing away, he says. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? That's a promise to us. That's God's word for us this morning. We're not, we're not bound by the law. We're not bound by rule keeping. We're bound to him through his death. And because of the death that he died, I've died to the law. I, I don't have to live there. I don't have to live in that way. There is richness. There's deep understanding. There is real fruit in our lives as a result of understanding these things this morning. In context, like I said, legalists love to take these things and kind of rip at people. But that's not Paul's heart. It's not God's heart. Certainly not mine. Let's pray. Father, as we look at, in chapter 8, when we look at serving in the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness of the letter, Lord, we know that 
and by your Holy Spirit, that you're growing us, that you're working in us. Father, I pray for each one here, each one online, that you would do that perfect work in our hearts, that you would find hearts that are yielded to the moving of your Holy Spirit, that when you're convicting us of sin, that we listen and that we take the appropriate steps, that when the enemy is coming along and trying to condemn us, that we identify that again, showing us that, that we could step away, that we could resist those things, that knowing that he has to flee. So we thank you this morning for this passage in Romans. Pray, Father, that as we apply these things to our lives, that our lives would be enriched, that we would go and bear the fruit that he talks about here. Lord, not, not, the, not the fruit that comes from condemnation or fear or any of that, but the, the fruit that comes from being permanently linked to you, from being called your sons, your daughters, from being a part of your church, Lord. We, we commit ourselves afresh to that end. We pray, Father, that you take anything out of the way that hinders that. And we ask, Lord, that you'd be glorified in the midst of our lives as we go forth from here. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.